What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm so stoked today. I'm so stoked today. I say this at the beginning of a lot of episodes, but today I'm really excited because I have one of my absolute heroes on the show, Joe Walsh, which you already know because you clicked on something that said this was an interview with Joe Walsh. Now, before we get started, I want to let you know, this is the last episode of this season. I'm so stoked about how this season turned out. It was really a pleasure. If you haven't heard any of the other episodes, that's fine. Go check out some of the other people that I interview, and if those people interest you, listen to those episodes. And in the meantime, I'm going to go have an, an enjoyable summer, and I'm getting ready. I just put out a new album. I'm excited about that, promoting that, and whatnot. Got a bunch of really exciting things happening. Check it out the album if you haven't yet, please. I appreciate it. And I'm going on tour in the fall. This fall, I'm going to Europe. I'm going to the west coast of the U.S. And then later, I'm going to the east coast and midwest of the U.S. So, if you like guitar music, if you like high energetic funk, jam, pop music, check it out. Come see a show. Come say hi to me at a show. I would love that. I love hanging and meet with people. And most of my fans are actually really cool, so that's fun. <laughs> they're actually really cool. Like, they're not supposed to be cool? No, I think it's awesome that my fans are awesome. Not everybody has awesome fans. I have the best fans. Now, today, like I said, I'm super excited. We have an absolute ledge on the show. Joe Walsh. He's been a part of several bands. I don't even need to name them because you already know them. He's been a solo artist, is a solo artist, incredible musician, guitarist, singer, songwriter. I don't need to intro him anymore because you already probably know who he is and what he's all about. But this interview, I gained some really great insight about Walsh that I didn't know. Check it out. Joe Walsh. You guys hit the distro kid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out, I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price no matter how many albums I have up, and I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out you know whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting distro kid just does it for us sick if you'd like to give him a try use my vip link to get 30 percent off your first year of distro kid membership distrokid.com slash vip slash cory wong there it is let's get to the episode joe thanks so much for being on the show it's really a pleasure to have you well i'm glad to be here thank you now, I want to start out with a guitar question regarding how you choose certain tones for certain situations. Because for me, I come from the Minneapolis school of funk. That's just my lineage, right? I'm from Minneapolis. 
And Prince once said, hey, the types of things you play on an album, you can't do the same lines in an arena and you can't use the same tone. Certain things just aren't going to translate when you're playing at Bunkers versus when you're playing at Madison Square Garden or whatever. When it comes to choosing your guitar tones and how you come up with tones in the studio or tunes when you're playing in arenas or stadiums, do you approach it differently or is it basically just the same for you? No, you have to approach it differently, and that's a good question. My first band, the James Gang, ended up being a three-piece band. And being that I was the only melodic instrument, I really needed uh, to sound like I'm playing lead and sound like I'm playing rhythm. Because if I stopped either one, there was a hole. So uh, Peter Townsend actually taught me. He was a mentor in that department because he was basically in a three, three-piece band also. Uh, it's a technique called lead rhythm. And that is balls to the wall, pretty much. But I had to use uh, humbucking pickups. I had to use Marshalls and humbucking pickups. Okay, and that's yeah. just because that really was part of the chemistry of a three-piece group. Yeah. Being in a three-piece group, there's nothing better on a good night, and there's nothing worse on a bad night. <laughs> now, uh, recording, pretty much, I want to go to single coil. Really? A Strat or a Telly. Yeah. Because the Les Paul or the double humbugging has so many harmonics. Yeah. And so many overtones. I mean, that's why I used it live. Sure. But uh, on a record, you don't want to uh, own the frequencies that you're playing on so that. You can't hear an acoustic guitar or you can't hear a piano. If you fill those guitar frequencies with all the harmonics and all the overtones, uh, it just ain't going to work. Yeah. So some of it's just creating space for other things to be in the production. Yeah. If you're recording, yeah. Yeah. And I have found that single coil pickups work really good. I mean, that's all they use in Nashville. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. And and, and that, those are great records. Yeah. Uh, but but balls to the wall, rock and roll, you, the only way you can use a Strat is through a Marshall with it, with a first face or something <laughs> like Hendrix <laughs> Yeah. Okay, now... Oddly enough, Jimmy Page played a psychedelic telecaster in all of the Yardbirds. Yeah. And I, uh, the James Gang opened for Led Zeppelin when they first came to America. And we opened for them, and they played four or five places. One of them was Cleveland. And so I met. I met Jimmy. Yeah. 
and the, their first album had just come out and people were just starting to discover Led Zeppelin. So the word of mouth was huge. But a lot of people came to hear Yardbird songs mm. because that's all they knew. Yeah. So Jimmy and I became friends because uh, pretty much that's a three-piece band with the lead singer. And Jimmy said to me, look, uh, the Yardbirds is great. And, and I've played on so many records. He played on so many sessions. If you look up what he played on, you'll be amazed. But he said, this Telecaster ain't cutting it for Led Zeppelin. And I don't know what to do. Now, Les Pauls were virtually, uh, didn't exist in England at the time. And they weren't, they didn't hit popularity yet. And they were pretty easy to find because they hadn't been discovered and they didn't cost very much. After the fact, when, when that became the guitar for rock and roll, well, you know, the rest is history. But he said, I, I got to get, I got to get a double coil situation. And, and I've looked for less Paul. There aren't any in England. And, uh, do you know any any way you could you help me get one? Because Led Zeppelin ain't making it with a telecaster. Sure. And I happen to have two. <laughs> I found one in the basement of a family-owned music store in I think Athens, Ohio, where Ohio University is. It was just in the basement. Yeah. I walked in and I looked around and I said, you know, and it was all Voxes and, and you know, Rickenbackers and Beatles stuff. Yeah. And I said, what do you got downstairs? And there was a, there was a Les Paul. And I found another one through a friend. I traded him, him some stuff for one. So uh, one I really liked and one I, I just... So we're saving for a rainy day. So I gave Jimmy that one. Ha! You gave and Jimmy I, his first Les Paul? Yeah. Wow. And that, that Les ha! Paul, ha! he calls number one. That's his number and, one? That's that one? That, that's the, the body of Led Zeppelin music is that Les Paul <laughs> that I gave him. I couldn't imagine that Led Zeppelin catalog on a telly. No. <laughs> Neither could I, neither could he. Yeah. And he said, I'm in big trouble here. So uh, <laughs> I said, look, just try this out. I think I think this will solve the problem. Yeah. And uh, if you like it, uh, we'll talk. And several times I thought about asking for it back, but that ain't going to work. But he gives people something. Yeah. You gave it to him. Yeah. He gave me, I don't know, he gave me eventually 1500 bucks or something. And, and, and that's uh, less than I paid for it. Wow. Wow, I even mean, at that time. A, a little bit less yeah. than I paid for it. So I broke even on that. But now, there you go. But you helped craft there the sound go. of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I did. I gave Peter Townsend... The Gretsch 6120, 
Whoa. I'll tell you about that. Peter had played, we opened for for The Who. We opened for Tommy when they premiered it in Europe. Sure. James King did. Yeah. And Peter had a, like an SG with P90s. Yeah. And a high watt amp. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was for Tommy. It was perfect. He could back off the volume and play all the the segues in in the Tommy opera. Yeah. And then for the power chords, it, it would crank it. And after Tommy ran its course and he was trying to come up with some new music, the only thing he knew was the SG with P90s and a high watt. That's all he had used for, for a five-year run. And he told me, I'm having trouble writing anything new. And I gave him a Gretsch 6120 that I bought, I think, in Nashville from George Gruen and a 310 Bandmaster hmm. Tweed. Wow. Okay. And that's a magic amp. Yeah. And that amp and that guitar are the Who's Next album. Wow. So you're responsible for, I'm wondering what, like, what could Joe Walsh give me that's going to unlock this new character inside my brain? Well, look, <laughs> I, lo I, I love these guys. And, and, they were my heroes and 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 they came to me i've, I've done that a lot yeah I've, I've done that a lot but those two are of note yeah absolutely now, now see see a single coil wouldn't make it for who's next correct and a humbucker would be too much but that gretch was exactly what he needed for like won't get fooled again. Yeah. And and those songs. Wow. So single pickup, double coil pickup. That from my experience, that's as much of that science as I know, but that's from proven proven shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope I answered your question. A hundred percent. Now you mentioned Pete, and you mentioned gear from back in that day. Nowadays, there's so many effects. There's so many different amps, so many different types of guitars to choose from, which is wonderful. It's great. But I'm curious because there wasn't as many manufacturers. There just wasn't as many pedals available back then. But you're one of the few cats who was really known for the talk box, at least my interpretation. You know, like you... Peter Frampton, Joe Perry, a lot of the classic and just when I think of just great rock guitar tones and just different effects that were used, that's one of them. What got you into that? And were you into other effects at the time or were you just like the guitar and the amp? Uh, no, I've never really been a guitar guy. As a matter of fact, I've been asked over and over again, how did I get the guitar sound on Funk 49? Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer. And I just, my advice was, hey, just plug the guitar into the amp. And that may be all you need. Uh-huh. 
nobody does that anymore, except <laughs> blues guys. But Funk 49 was a, was a 60s Telecaster into a Fender Champ. That's a Champ? A blackface Champ. Wow. Plugged right in, that's it. Is it cranked? Mm, no, nah, it's on six and a half. Yeah. But why does it sound like that? Well, it had an eight-inch speaker. Yeah. And nothing sounds like an eight-inch speaker. Yeah. And that is why Funk 49 sounds like that. That's incredible. So I'm not a big effects guy. I don't know why they have walls and walls of effects racks. I, I just don't know. Really good guitar players don't need any of that. Have you ever plugged into digital amps or any of that stuff? You ever even dabble? Uh, nah, nah. I won't go near it. Yeah, that's nah. fair. It doesn't sound. It doesn't sound good live. I mean, if you're in Vegas and, and you know there's great musicians in Vegas that are the house bands for all the shows, mm -hmm. right? Uh. You probably have all your presets midied with effects because sure. you, you can't play loud and you probably just go to the next song Yeah, and your presets there. You don't have time to turn knobs. So there is a use for it live. Yeah. Uh, Edge is like that. Edge has lots of effects. Uh, and different effects for each song. Mm -hmm. His tech is a genius. <laughs> yeah. But Edge is one of the guys, yeah, that that he doesn't let the pedals dominate him as a guitar player. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, he 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 goes eventually it goes to the amp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the pedals embellish it. They don't mutate it. Yeah. So I'm not a big guy on digital technology, period. Hmm. I'm an analog guy. Yeah. When I was talking I to Steve Lukather, he had a landline that rang. Do you still have a landline? Uh, in my house, but not in my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> See, I tried to put a landline in my guitar. It just didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you can get carried away with effects and you can lose your perspective. Yeah. And every now and then I get on Amazon and get all the pedals that I've seen on people's pedal boards and try them out. And I go back to what I usually use, which is uh, a buffer mm -hmm. first thing. Yep. That's important. And... Uh, a little bit of a compressor sometimes, but basically I use a chorus sparingly, yep. a delay, and an overdrive. Yeah. Which overdrive do you use now? Uh, I'd have to go look. Do you remember what color it is? Yeah. Let, let me go look. Okay. I'll be right back. There's a great overdrive that's made by Wizard. Wizard. Okay, cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. And the origin effects, that overdrive they just sent me, and that's a monster. I like the blend yeah. knob on it. 
Yeah. yeah Isn't yeah. that great? Yeah, yeah. I like that they, they've been putting blend knobs on overdrives. Pretty cool. There you go. You can embellish without, you know, you hear an overdrive set way too hot. Yeah. And what happened to the guitar sound, you know? So I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm an analog guy. I like I like tape. Yeah. I like records. There's no need to I apologize. Like, I like side B. <laughs> I like when the uh, the whole band's in the same room with headphones on and you roll tape and they all play their part at the same time. I like that. Now we're talking. That's, that's mojo. That's, that's all the Eagles records. Yeah. That's the mojo of it. I don't like when nobody, there's albums, nobody, nobody played anything on them. Yeah, I don't like what that's ha- what that's done. I don't like what the digital age is doing to music. We talked about studio tone. We've talked about how we get different tones. One of the really cool things that you do is that you make really creative parts that are iconic, and that's something that us as guitar players and session players and writers in general are always striving for. How can we make a rhythm part not feel like just, oh, they're playing the chords or kind of outlining whatever, but rather than that, making it feel like this is an iconic part that has to be played every time this song is played. Is there a certain approach that you have to crafting your guitar parts, solos, lines that gets you in that mindset? Well, when it's all done, it's got to do this. It's got to all fit together. You can't do that. So you got to listen to what spaces are available. Mm-hmm. Where, if there was a guitar part, where would it go? Uh huh. Because you don't want to play, you can't play over the lead vocal. Yeah. You know, and if there's uh, a very busy, Organ or keyboard part, you can't play over that. So where does it go and what does the track need? And I listen to the bass player and the drums because that's the groove. If you're tuned in with those guys and you don't play while anything else is playing, you got a good chance of having a, a good part. Yeah. And less is more, less is more. My my girl, my girl. Boom, 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 boom. It's perfect. Says it all. That's perfect. Is there a specific guitar part or song of yours that you feel like this is my best playing? Not lead wise. I'm just talking, just playing, just anything in general where you feel like this is where I feel like I got my absolute best out of myself. Yeah, I think Rocky Mountain Way, probably. Yeah. What do you think? What else? What would be second to that? Probably Hotel California so far. Yeah, yeah. And then there's plenty to come, too, which is exciting. (laughs) You mentioned Hotel California. You've played in a bunch of different bands, and you've had your own solo career, all very successful and all really great music. And you seem to be somebody who really emanates creativity and emanates just art and music. It's part of you. It comes out of you. 
Now, when you're in a band, how can you, do you have any advice? So I'm, I'm in a band where there's a lot of eccentric personalities and we work really well together because our personalities most of the time are compatible, compatible with each other and compatible. <laughs> compatible. Like yeah. Compatible. Maybe that was a Freudian slip. No, no. Get it the first time. <laughs> no, they are very compat compatible with each other. <laughs> but yeah. when when you're in a group with a bunch of eccentric and very creative driven people, do you have any advice for those that might be in that situation on how to make that gel in the best way? Well, in my experience, the only chance you got is don't ever take anything personally mm. to the point where ultimatums start and the option that looks the best for you is to quit the band. Mm. I won't get into in-depth Eagles stuff, but in the Eagles, we had four now, but th there were five alpha males. Yeah. And good musicians. Yeah. And it was established that Don and Glenn were in charge. They were the main songwriters, and, and it was an honor, you know, to be able to play guitar with those harmonies. What great material to think of guitar parts. But we argued a lot in in making an album long run hotel california we argued a lot and we disagreed a lot and there's rumors that we fought a lot i don't remember that i remember arguments about what direction are we going in sure with this track it wasn't even a song yet and voices raised and maybe some stomping around and stuff. But that kind of tension, if it's controlled, makes for creativity. Mm -hmm. We went at it a couple of times and what we ended up doing wouldn't, wouldn't have been in place if we hadn't had that discussion. Yeah. And you can use disagreements uh, creatively if you don't take anything personal and if you don't let it go DEF CROM 3. That was really, that's the secret of really good songwriting. I don't think it's a secret, but for me, uh, stirring up the hornets so everybody's tuned in, defines what you're doing instead of not knowing. Sure. And gives everybody focus. It's part of the creative process. To actually lean on the tension when it's there to draw out more creativity. Draw yeah, out if, if there's one guy and he's telling everybody what to play, <clears throat> that's not a band. Yeah. I think certain bit for myself, I think for us, I mean, we all love each other and we're great friends and we have a respect for each other. And there is a lot of alpha leaders in the band, but I think sometimes it's just, okay, you lead this thing, you lead this thing, all right, you lead this thing. But in the end, it's there is one band leader 
but he allows space for everybody to step up once in a while to certain things. Well, he listens. Yeah. He listens. And you might have a position that he has to say, you know what? I think that's what we should do. Yeah, and I come to that all the time where sometimes I'll feel strongly about something and then somebody will say something brilliant. I'm like, all right, yeah, I was wrong. That's okay. I'm good. (laughs) There you go. There you go. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Your song, Life's Been Good. Now that you've lived more life, would you change any of those lyrics? No, I don't think I would rewrite it. I might put in a uh, 21st century set of lyrics. Sure. But that one stands for itself. It absolutely does. I mean, there, there's, you know, that was, I don't know what, 40 years ago, something like that. There's a lot more situations that would fit in that song. <laughs> yeah. Since then and now. But yeah, uh, Life's Been Good 2K. <laughs> I can see you smile. <laughs> 2.0, 2.0, 2021. That's a good idea, actually. That would be very interesting to hear some updated verses about your life. Yeah, because <laughs> now uh, I know what not to do. Yeah, and some of us need to hear that. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my advice to young guitar players. I can't tell you, I'm not, I'm not going to answer all your problems, but I know what doesn't work. Yeah. I can tell you what not to do, and that'll save you a lot of time. <clears throat> and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I'm still here and have that body of knowledge. What's the most common thing you end up saying to guitar players on what not to do? Leave it on stage. When you come off the stage, you're not that guy. Don't walk around thinking you are. Hmm. And when you go on stage, you be that guy. Mm. Because that's who they came to see. That song, Life's Been Good, is so incredible to me in a lot of ways. But one way that doesn't always get pointed out is that it's a long song by modern day standards. But also there's so much instrumental music. There's a lot of music happening in that song. Yeah. And there's a lot of long musical sections, which to me is incredible. Was that even a, a set? Like, was that even a thought of like, Oh, should we do it this long? It's just like, no, this feels totally right. And this still feels like it could be a hit song. Like today, if anybody tried to do something where they would send that into their label or whatever, the label would be like, ah, no, you got to shorten this section by literally oh, they, at 80%. They, 
They said that about life's been good. But once it got on FM radio, people were calling up AM stations and playing and saying, what happened to the middle part? Really? So they made two different versions for AM and for FM? They tried an AM radio edit, but we ignored it. We ignored wow. it. I just, I, you know, I, I tried to make like an epic, an epic approach. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's what I wrote. It's incredible. Well, it made a lot of people happy. And after a while, the, the radio stations just, they, they had no choice. So explain to me the difference between AM and FM back then. Why would they have tried something different on AM radio? Well, back in the day, program directors, uh, over about three minutes and 20 seconds, a lot of stations wouldn't play the record. Oh, okay. Well, similar to today. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay, so it was just as simple as that. But, you know, once FM radio started, th that ended. But I, I remember, you know, also <clears throat> you could only get so much content on a vinyl album. Yeah. Uh, 18 minutes was perfect. Yeah, personally. After 20 minutes, you were pushing it. You couldn't put that many grooves uh, on the side of of vinyl. Yeah. And they, all the stupid contracts we all signed, you had to have 10 or 11 tracks. Mm. That's what, that's this contract you signed when somebody said, here, sign this. Yeah. Because we all did. Sure. We didn't read it. So the songs had to be short. <laughs> Do you feel like the length of each side of the album stifled your creativity in the writing and recording or actually the limitation opened up a different type of creativity for you? It opened up a different kind of creativity and that was to write an album as a concept. Mm. Not, not just a bunch of, of uh, tracks that don't have anything to do with each other. Yeah. And, and part of the science of making a good album was to listen to your songs and put them in a sequence yeah. that took you on a journey. And then you had to look at your times because you couldn't have 16 minutes on one side and 23 on the other. Yeah. So you had to get out your legal pad and add them all up and say, well, this is this has got to go here. No, that's not going to write. Well, this song has to be first. And this should be the end of side one. And this should be the last song. All of that was involved in making albums. And, and I miss that a lot. Yeah. Do you feel like you make albums differently now than you did then? There aren't any albums, my friend. Wait, what is an album? The internet, the internet ate all that. There's no album. Albums are round and have side B. I, I just, I, I can't talk to you about albums in any way other than that. I think the modern age is very hard 
to have the same sort of path with the radio play, with getting in stores and that sort of thing. But I do think there is a certain side of the digital age that allows for it to be, well, uh, I guess for a lack of a better metaphor, not as deep, but a lot wider. So with the digital age, there's a lot more artists that are making money on a smaller level that can make a living and in, then, you know, another step up, make a comfortable living. And then, you know, there's a hand, there is artists that can make make a living doing what they're doing without being on the radio, myself included. Like I'm not on the radio, but I make money and can make albums um, doing what I do. And I absolutely love doing it. But I think it's a different, it's a completely different mindset. And I think for many of us that didn't grow up, even with CD sales, it's a, it's a different, like, I don't know what it was like to sell 500,000 CDs. So I can't reference that. Right. You know, and, and for our, for the band that I'm with, with Wolfpack, you know, for most bands, a, a generation ahead of us, it's like you get to the point where you're selling out Madison Square Garden, you should be hiding money. But that's not the case nowadays. It's like, no, it, like it, it, it was really expensive to rent out the room and we're just not making the money on, on sales. It's now in streaming. So for us, it's all we know, but we are being told by the previous generation that we're being ripped off. And now I'm starting to believe it the more and more that I hear it. <laughs> like you're saying that, but, and, and, and it's one thing to be like, oh, am I being ripped off? But the one thing that makes me feel, and, and I don't feel ripped off because right. I have nothing to tie mm-hmm. it to, but the one thing that you bring up that is very important for the entire community to talk about is these sort of laws that were passed in the 30s, the 50s, and haven't weren't updated for even the first generation of digital and just sales, like selling files, and now literally just streaming files, it feels like we absolutely have to help the law catch up to where we're at in the way we consume and release music. There's there's, uh, teams of musicians left over from the vinyl analog days that are screaming at Congress. Yeah. Help. But Congress doesn't have a clue. They can't pass a law, period, much less to take care of musicians. Yeah, and it seems also like it's almost impossible by streaming standards to even go platinum. Like 1,500 streams equals a sale of an album. Like, I don't remember the last time I bought a vinyl record and listened to it 1,500 times. Like, sure, I'll listen to something over and over again. But for 1,500 listens to account the equivalent of a purchase, some of those things seem to me like, what? Like, even some of my favorite albums, I don't know that I've listened to 1,500 times. Yeah, and that's just a stream. I mean, that's just a, that's just a download that, that you know, <clears throat> iTunes kind of kind of uh kind of looks at those and kind of estimates in theory how much income that would have generated but all those people email good music to each other and that might be your 15,000 plays nobody sure. knows you have a new signature Paul Reed Smith guitar 
That sounds incredible. Can you tell me about what it is? I, I've already seen the video, so I watched the video on the launch night. But for those that are listening that don't know what I'm talking about, tell us about the guitar. Well, Paul came up with a humbucking design in a tr- traditional format, <clears throat> but he looked at everything he mm-hmm. knows and put it into this guitar. And he looked at all those vintage guitars that we all know and love. He figured out why some of them are magic and why some of them, it's nice to have that old guitar, but you you can't really play it. And he put his heart and soul into this guitar design. And I, you know, if I'm bored on the road, I'll go buy a new guitar (laughs) at a music store and I'll say, oh boy, that's the one. I'm going to get that. And I take it to the hotel and I got to work on it like crazy to get it to where it's playable. And usually I ne- it never gets that far and I put it in storage with all my other guitars. So I'm, I, every time I buy a new guitar, I wish I hadn't. But Paul sent me this guitar and said, tell me what you think. And out of the box, it was perfect. All of that stuff I have to do to a new guitar to get it right was all done and thought of in advance. And I called Paul and I said, don't change a thing. (laughs) You're done. Really? The very first prototype was it? That was done? I said, you're done, Paul. It sounds amazing. The pickups are amazing. The action's amazing. The neck is amazing. It's not too heavy. It just sounds great. The, none, of the, none of those strings fret out yeah. on any of the frets. It intonates all the way up. I said, you're done. Uh, excuse my language, but I said, you try and make improvements to this, you're just going to fuck it up. Wow. You're done. And and he didn't want to hear that. He said, well, I was, I was hoping uh, you had some uh, input. And I said, nope. <laughs> so is that an all-in-one guitar for you? Do you play that for slide? Do you play that for regular? Out of the box. If I'm going to use a humbucking format guitar, that's the only one I'll pick up. Wow. Out of the box. That's incredible. So I put my name on it. I like that. I like that. And and I think the world of him for for taking on that challenge. That's cool. Well, clearly he nailed it. (laughs) Yeah, he did. Well, we made a limited edition, edition of 200 and I signed them all. Is that, is it straight up 200? That's it. That's all that's being made. We're talking now of making another batch because they're going fast. Wow. Wow. That sounds incredible. Yeah. That sounds incredible. I got to try to play one. I got to see if I have the same feeling that you had. You will. (laughs) I like that. I like that. I have one last question, and it has to do with 
doing something bigger than music and doing something bigger than for yourself. And for many of us as musicians, we feel a calling or a certain tug towards certain efforts, certain causes in the world. And I know that you've had certain things that you've really been an advocate for. And even doing a concert series with Vets Aid and and other things, you know, where you've tried to gain not only funds, but um, awareness towards other things. For your personal life and your career, what do you feel is the most important thing that you can say outside of just your music? Well, I think it's important that those of us from the analog days keep going because we have wisdom and knowledge that young musicians will be much better for. Mm -hmm. So I want to work hard at taking time to teach and share and talk uh, to young musicians because I know what not to do. Yeah. Vets Aid I started because I am resonant to veterans and they need help really bad. I am a gold star kid. My father died when I was two years old. He was in the Army Air Corps before there was an Air Force. And I grew up with, with a hole in me where, where he had been. And so I am resonant to Gold Star families when a loved one doesn't come home. Always have been. And my, grand, my, my grandfather told me about being in France during World War I, and that was a horrible war. If you got, if you got wounded, pretty much you died. And one time he told me about it. Other than that, he never talked about it. And... A lot of veterans from World War II never talked about it. Mm. And Korea never really talked about it. But post-traumatic stress, I mean, you go to where you come back different. Mm -hmm. And the transition back to civilian life is often too big of a mountain to climb. And nobody cares and nobody understands. And I just decided this is a place where I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many thousand, 50,000 homeless vets. What's up with that? So I started Vets Aid and uh, my buddies, fellow musicians, that's the one one thing they all say, yeah, I'll be there. I feel the same way. And I've been able to make a big difference in helping vets. 
And that's a great feeling. Wow. Yeah. To make a difference. And I, I think that's important. I need to, for the time I have left, I need to do things that make a difference. Payback. Because I, I don't know if it's ability or or craft or a lot of it's luck. A lot of it was being in the wrong place at the right time. Mm. But it's important that people my age from my generation keep going and make a difference. Do you feel like people can still have that sort of vision at a young age? You can certainly do it. it you know, it, everybody, all of us can help. All of us can participate in things like Black Lives Matter and racial problems and stuff that isn't fair. All of us can do that, but there's a different level uh, further along in your life where you will really dedicate yourself. Yeah, a deeper understanding of... It, it comes with experience and age. It just kind of happens naturally. But you'll be doing it, pal. <clears throat> yeah, I already am. But I, I feel yeah. like I, with the life experience and with more and more things happening, that it, it will be deepened in a way like you're talking about. I mean, the, it's inspiring to hear you speak of your life experience and even from a very young age and taking that and honing that energy honing your life experience through your music and your career, being able to use the platform that you have in order to connect with those that you have a shared experience, not not exactly, but a, a, a similar experience with. So you are able to speak to their lives in a way that somebody who hasn't lived that experience would, would be able to connect with them. That's what I got going for me, yeah. Now, I checked you out when I was asked <laughs> to, to come and be part of this today. And I, I would say, with this show, you're making a difference. I appreciate and that. I, I salute you. Thank this you. It's a damn good, damn good show, and that's why I'm on it. <laughs> oh, that really means a lot. Well, thank you, Joe. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do it. And... For those listening, go check out that new PRS, Joe Walsh. Hey, Jason, feeling you. Feeling you. <laughs> There's a third guy in this show who has headphones on, and that's why you can hear Corey, Corey and me. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Joe. See you, buddy. Now, how about that? I feel really good. Walsh said he checked out my stuff, says it's a great podcast, and that's why he's on it. That makes me feel giddy-licious inside. Now, I did meet Joe Walsh once, loosely, loosely. I told this story in the Lindsay L. podcast, but one time I was walking on to a Delta flight, and I was flying an economy, and there's a familiar-looking face in seat I believe it was either 2C or 3C. Yes, that's first class. Joe Walsh was on the flight 
from LAX to MSP. I was carrying my guitar, and he looked up at me, and he gave me that look of, like, one of the comrades, like another guitar player. He gave me a little nod, like, hey, you're a guitar player too. Yeah, man. And that carried me through a couple weeks. I'm dead serious. I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm coming back from this L.A. trip. It wasn't as awesome of a trip as I wanted it to be. There was some whatever. I don't need to go into it. But then I saw Walsh, and he gave me that little, like, hey, man, cool, you're a guitar player. He didn't have a freaking clue who I am. He didn't know. He couldn't care less. But he extended that little nod, and it brightened my day. Now, thank you so much for listening. You being here brightens my day. Also, I'm feeling really good. I'm excited about this summer, about this fall. Like I said, I'm going on tour. Come check out the band. It's going to be slamming. Corey and the Wong Notes on tour. It's a huge band. It's going to be insane. Check it out. I'll see you next season. Peace.